outside the box of religious obligation lies a road less travelled into the heart of the Father's affection. Slinging freedom all over the place, this is the God Journey. Wayne, I don't know if I am losing faith in humanity or I'm just cynical, but I have been fighting with an auto mechanic shop for the last nine weeks. So I, I'm sorry for any auto mechanics that are listening to this, but I am becoming highly suspicious of your kind. Oh, wow. That's that's a broad brush sweep there, buddy. It is. It is, unfortunately. And losing faith in people is a good thing. <laughs> that's a good thing. So I don't know if that's necessarily cynical. I think you want to keep all your faith right there in Jesus somewhere and just love people. It's so much easier. That's fair, but I... As much as I have gone charismatic on my Subaru WRX, it has not fixed the engine, unfortunately. Depend on some people. <laughs> it was not nine months ago that you blew up your car. Uh, nine weeks. Nine weeks. Oh, nine weeks it was? It's been nine weeks since yeah. you blew your car It's been up? nine weeks. Well, so they started fixing it. They literally went in. They fixed this thing. They said, um, do you want us? We're looking at the timing belt. We're looking at the tensioners. Um, we don't see any issues, but do you want us to replace it while we're in there? And I said, well, how much is that going to cost? And they told me how much it was going to cost. And it was a pretty high amount. And Jess and I were in the middle of transitioning and moving. I said, is there any indication that there's any mechanical issues? And they said, no. I said, okay, well then let's just get it fixed and we'll go from there. So they fixed what needed to be fixed. And then I pick it up from the dealership. And two days later, the engine starts making this horrific squealing sound. Well, come to find out the mechanical issue that was causing the squealing noise was literally the thing that they said that needed to be fixed. It was a lot more expensive. And then all of a sudden they're saying, yeah, we're going to also charge you a lot more money to fix it, even though they literally were in there. And I, I, I'm highly suspicious that this, this mechanic shop intentionally damaged part of my engine in order to have me come back in and spend more money because I didn't take their initial suggestion to spend money in their shop to get it fixed the first time. Wow. Yeah. I'm having a hard time not believing that there isn't some misconduct that is taking place behind closed doors. And no way to prove it. And no way to prove it. Correct. Yeah. Them just telling me that I need to shell out another $1,500 to fix my car. That's why finding a mechanic you can trust is a pretty valuable thing. And once you have them, hold on to them an insanely valuable thing oh, i'm sorry that's a bummer yeah oh, i'm feeling pretty independent today oh you are okay I'm independence missouri that's where we're located we <laughs> hit, hit the truman library yesterday and this is a town we're only a couple blocks from the house he lived in when he left the white house and got eisenhower in on friday and got truman in today and now we're headed for lincoln's in a few in a week or so so what is the emphasis on the libraries I, I, I know that going into a library, at least for me, is still a great experience because of the possibilities of what you might encounter. But for you, you're actually like intentionally going and seeing all these historic libraries. So what, what's the appeal? What's drawing you to going in and seeing these historic libraries? Well, they're not libraries. They're actually museums. You know, the, the library, oh, okay. all the material is over there where only researchers can access the papers from the presidencies. But each presidency gotcha. has a museum of the just the arc of their life and the arc of their presidential journey. And seeing those two back to back, that's the last half of the 40s and almost all the 50s between Truman and Eisenhower. And boy, it just it makes you hurt for a different world we used to live in. 
where the politics weren't so vitriolic, where men of character from rural small town America that had some character and values were finding their way into the presidency through very different routes. And just how much even President Eisenhower, before he was president, when he was uh, Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces in World War II, the preparation of his life, just decisions that he made that allowed him to be in the space that he could do the things he needed to do to win World War II. It, it's outstanding. And you see providence in that. You see people of character in that. And you hurt for the fact that nah, not so much today. You don't see that same reality. And very few people in public office are people of character. Everybody's pandering to their base instead of telling Americans what they need to know and what we need to do to help make this country better and trying to involve all sides instead of just my side against your side. And we seem content to live in vitriolic politics in our day. And I think that's incredibly sad. I, d I agree with you. I believe it's incredibly sad. And I, in the last couple of elections, I have had my own very strong personal feelings about, okay, father, what's going on here? And what happened to our country that was producing and electing leaders that not all the time had strong character and foundation and spine and and were prepared to transition into that level of leadership but there's just been some question marks in my mind as as to what has shifted and why are we okay with this are we actually electing the best and most qualified leaders to hold that responsibility or not the idea of intentionally creating a unified country and seeing your role in leadership as leading all of the nation, not just in maintaining your party's interests. Yeah, unfortunately, we don't live in a time where we actually get to go find somebody who we would like to be our president because of the qualities of their life. We're given a binary choice by two political parties that are pandering to the extreme elements in their parties. And yeah. all I think a big factor is all the money involved, obviously, and corporations yeah. and private families who want to influence the country their direction. And these are sad days, unless they're preparation for the end of the age, then they're good days, <laughs> if that's uh, actually where we're headed. Well, I'm Wayne Jacobson. And I'm Kyle Rice. And our journeys have brought us to Missouri and headed off to uh, Illinois soon. Uh, actually be in Missouri, the other side of it, St. Louis area the rest of the week, and then okay. the end of the week. And then uh, up to Illinois and then uh, on our way south. So a trip's going well. My dog has rebounded, I guess, not doing the three-mile walk every day and having some herbs. Oh, Abby's doing great. I mean, she's kind of back to old form. So we're now thinking maybe we do get her home. Maybe There's moments where she's disoriented, which is part of what they say is the cancer in the brain. So we have those okay. moments, but they don't last very long, fortunately. We may get her home. Sarah and I had a great time. She is... Weird, because last year, I mean, we've had a good long season, perhaps because we were so busy with the house and remodeling it. She hasn't had a lot of kind of new memory surface, but on this trip, we've already had two pieces to that puzzle. And these are pretty deep and pretty dark, but they they do explain so much of where Sarah has felt trapped. And so uh, hopefully it's going to open up new freedom. That's our prayer anyway. And, you know, Sarah would like to be done with this part of the journey, but... Oh, man who wouldn't but yeah. this may be this may be a long time thing you know getting free from trauma is not a quick fix take a prayer here's a pill now you're all better no, overall she's doing great but also working through some stuff best thing you've heard this week 
the best thing that I heard from this week actually came from a dialogue with one of my classes. We got into a pretty intense conversation about the role of social media, phones, and unanimously in the classroom, every single student said that if they could go back to an era where they had cell phones that could only call and text, they would choose to go that direction. Mm. Their responses were we would get more time with our friends. We would be out in the community doing more things that we probably would have seen and explored more, that we would have had more time with our family. We would have gotten more homework done, that relationships would be better. One of them said that I listen to my parents' stories about high school and college and feel like I'm missing out. Hmm. And yet that's something they could choose to do, right? Just because you have it a is. smartphone doesn't mean you have to use it. And it's so hard to, to choose a more intentional route for our lives than it is to just cave to the easiest thing that's in our hand or in our mind or amusement for the moment and not realize, maybe even we do realize the long-term cost we pay, but it's not worth making the choices to get us into different space. I know Sarah and I, part of this trip for us is visiting some old friends that we've not, some college friends, some people that we have uh, been in relationship more closely 10, 12 years ago, people that really were helpful in, in difficult moments back then. Um, but some things kind of crept into the relationship. There's a little bit of distance because some miscommunication, some offense or whatever. And we're having yeah. the marvelous uh, joy of being able to pick up some old friendships and working through some old confusions and hurts and misunderstandings and finding that reconnection. And I and even the, the individual people we've met, again, always the individual conversations, even the people that if we had a bigger conversation, had 12, 20, 30 people in a room, the things wouldn't come up that come up when you're twos and threes. Mm. And so we're, we're enjoying seeing how God's restructuring some of that. But, you know, it's yeah. so easy to abandon social media. I mean, if you want to do social media for your job or putting some message in the world, great, but don't, that's not your social life. It doesn't count. Maybe social media is the bad term. But Relational sabotaging media, something like that. The challenge though is, is that in the current generation, so by that, I mean, under the age of 23, you cannot separate phone and socialization. In their world, you know, that's why they're called some of them, some sociologists term it the iPhone generation is because literally they do not know what it means to live in a world without smartphones. And so the socialization factor, it's so integrated into their schema, into how they create their own personal identity and how they relate to the world. And then today we were talking about in our, in our conversation of socialization and the development of their social identity. Um, the impact of the impact of AI and what that's going to do for their generation. You know, as a millennial, I was growing up and developing as the internet was becoming more and more influential. And for them, they're growing up in a world where AI is becoming more and more influential. And they're figuring out how do we include that into our schema, schema of the way of working through the world and working through relationship. At least they have a sense that if we didn't have to have these things, we'd be better off. Yes. And maybe yes. somebody will figure out someday we don't have to have these things. We don't. Even if commercial interests exploit them for whatever their ends are, I as yeah. an individual don't have to live my life around those. Or they're going to eventually going to own you. Absolutely.
So I heard someone say last week, I like this thought. It was a, actually, he credits it to an angel, which is interesting. He said, he, it's a guy from the UK. He was talking to some guy who was picking flowers out of a hedgerow or something. And he gave him a few little nuggets of wisdom. So looking back, I'm kind of wondering if that guy was not just a guy hanging in a hedgerow. Because he asked him where he lived. And he said, I just kind of live all around. So he didn't really get too specific. <laughs> he right? said this, though, the biggest obstacle to your destiny is your attempts to make it happen. Ooh, okay. Say that one more time. The biggest, biggest obstacle, obstacle to your destiny is your attempts to make it happen. Oh, gosh. I can imagine Hands angels down. saying yeah. something like that. And going through the Eisenhower uh, Truman Libraries, neither one of those two men had a desire to be president of the United States. They didn't have this lifelong desire like Clinton or Bush or whoever. They just were men pursuing other avenues and got to a place where people drew them into that environment and not having the aspiration to be there they found their destiny at a time when america mm -hmm. needed the leadership of both of them and i i really think more than we know we're all taught how to pursue our destiny and have a dream and fulfill it in ten thousand hours and all the stuff that we invest in trying to make something happen and a few people can make it work that way i'm not saying they're right. not you're not going to become a great tennis player without at least ten thousand hours of practice or golf or anything else but in terms yeah. of finding out who we truly are and how to share that in a meaningful way with the world, I think that stuff unfolds far better than we can see it from afar and scheme our way into it. And it has a whole lot less, less frustration when you're not trying to make it happen on your own. I think it's really interesting because that's the challenge is that often we're still pointing towards the very, very small percentage of people that do make it through those means, right? Or that are now being groomed, you know, for years upon years upon years to assume whatever form of leadership or role or, or career path. For me, especially being able to learn to have the freedom to enjoy the process of figuring out who God is in the day, the daily adventures that I get invited into on a regular basis versus trying to fulfill some prescripted destiny that either is man-made or is coming through the brand of Christianity as my, my mission for life, it's much more interesting. I spent 20 very frustrating years pursuing a destiny that I both felt I had by calling internally and others had prophesied over me in various ways to my complete anguish and frustration and even feeling somehow not treated fairly by God in a lot of that. Yeah, And then having given all of that up in my 40s and learning to live loved and watch what God has pulled out of, some of what I'm living now was very common to what I saw back then when I was a little kid, a younger adult, but I tell you, in a fully different way, a, a way I would have never conceived of and yet mm -hmm. love so much better than what I dreamed it was. And I think that's that's pretty much what that statement says that you're trying to pursue a destiny and you may even be right about the destiny to pers you're pursuing, yes. but the biggest obstacle is you're trying to make it happen instead of yeah. letting Jesus unfold it in the world you're in and let it arise, not through your schematic planning, but your ability to take advantage of a situation or a circumstance when it presents itself that opens a door you cannot see to another situation who, wh where your response opens another door you cannot see. And it's not so contrived as to outcome. It is very relaxed and just, okay, God seems to nudge my heart that way. I'm going to go that way and see how it unfolds.
you're talking about two different things too, right? Like if you're grabbing hold of it and controlling, even if you're getting to your schema, you're going through the world's perceived training of what you're going to need once you obtain that role. And so they're like, okay, you need this, this, blah, 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 blah. You need these foundations, et cetera. And yet have we not seen example after example after example of people who are groomed and given the world's knowledge and skill sets on how to get to these places. But once they get there, they don't have the character. They don't have the foundation. They don't have the breadth. And those are things that I feel like in, in the process of walking with father very early on, I was very tied up in the whole finding your calling and finding what God has intended for your life. And don't miss that. And, and how do you prepare that? How do you develop your calling? And and I remember just in one day of frustration and angst of my own performance, trying to do it right, trying to figure it out, just saying, Lord, I have no freaking clue what I need in, in order to live the life that you desire me to live. I have no clue what training, what knowledge, what life experience. I have no idea. So I'm handing over the reins and I want your training. I want your life experience. And that, oh my gosh. I mean, since then, looking back, that was 15, almost 16 years ago that he and I were having that conversation. And I would have never fathomed the places that he's taken me and the life experiences that I've had and sure. the training that I've gained in. And yet I love the life that I've gotten to live. And am I living the adventure that I wanted to? Yeah. In 2013, I said, I want to be a college professor and I want to create opportunities for young people to engage with content that matters to them. And 10 years later, I'm able to do that, but with so much more understanding, breadth of knowledge, real life experience that I can bring to bear that is adding to the quality of the type of experience that I can help facilitate. What Even over the last year, just watching, you know, we're going to go to Michigan, we're going to go to something international, just your heart in coaching. There's just all kinds of these things that swirling around. Any one of them probably would have fit something. And yet yeah. the place where you landed kind of out of the blue late in the process to watch your joy in it and to feel so this is why I'm on the planet that that would kind of help us understand just follow what seems to unfold rather than yeah. you know get an internship with a corrupt pastor to try and fulfill the destiny you think you want oh I I, I went down that road I know I mean, I, I said it. <laughs> yeah I I uh, definitely uh, lived that one out for fun so a couple of weeks ago, Sarah and I were talking about learning to live at the pace of going the going the pace of another person. If you want to walk with them, that you you've got to go with the slowest pace. You can't go with the make the slowest person go faster. And I got this email from Greg. I thought it was funny. He said, "Funny thing about your line about Lewis's dream at the end of the uh, podcast. When Jen and I were first married, we went out to get our mail at our apartment, which was in a group of boxes at the entrance." maybe a hundred or two feet from our hundred or two from our apartment door, Jen and I were holding hands. And I said, let's run. Well, she, I, when I was 22 or 23, I was very fast. Jen has never been fast. So she held on, but I ended up dragging her after only a short distance. She skinned her knee and was not happy with me. You really cannot go at the speed of the fastest person. Great example, <laughs> a little graphic, but wonderful. Uh, in the backpacking and guiding industry that I worked in when I was in college, they literally train you to take the slowest person in the hiking team and put them in the front because yeah. psychologically it increases their pace. And then it also forces the other people to slow down. But literally, like, I remember them telling me that I'm like, 
yeah, that feels a little bit like manipulation, though, because you're triggering the social shame of this individual that's at the front of, well, I have to speed up a lot in order to be able to not slow down the group and, you know, not be that person. And it is some of that. But I, I think the value of community, again, the, the, the quote was, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And I whether, whether you're holding hand, you don't have to put the person up front to shame them for being too slow. But the idea of let's be aware of the slow, slowest person around. And that's not, as yes. not a, a deprecative thing, but man, I find my life's better at Sarah's pace. It's not just for Sarah. It's actually calmer. I make less mistakes. I see more stuff than when I'm just rushing to get from point A to point B. Yeah. Jonathan wrote this week on my Instagram account. I have loved these podcasts on sin. We keep getting that. I have loved these podcasts on sin and have recommended them to quite a few people. Jody wrote this. I would agree that these discussions have been super interesting. Could viewing sin through a lens similar to trauma and trauma recovery be true? So many ideas, doubts, and fears of God could be all exchanged for peace, acceptance, love, kindness, etc. That sounds like kingdom to me. That would alone make me go, <laughs> okay, we're going to exchange doubts and fears for peace, acceptance, love, and kindness if I wasn't blaming myself for my sin. And then Pete mm. wrote this, which kind of dovetails into that. I asked the sober home men last week. He runs some sober homes back in Maryland, and they describe trauma, which many of them have experienced how and what mm -hmm. they would feel towards someone who has experienced trauma now. And it was so good to hear them use words like empathy, sympathy, compassion, sadness, comfort, and care. If God sees our missing the mark as our trauma, which I now believe, this is what your loving father feels towards you as he's drawing you to authentic relationships and a journey with him. Ephesians 2.1 seems to validate the whole thought. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. Who wants to be dead except those so traumatized that they don't want to live? All I want to do is live and keep on living. Eternity set in my heart, he quotes. So being dead in our sins is not our doing. It has happened to us. And it's his love and grace that draws us to him and his life from death. I've never heard this concept of sin in my 65 years in the Christian community. And it is so revolutionizing my love and compassion for people, and especially those who do not like me in my blood family. <laughs> wow that's mm. again the whole dead and trespasses and sin if, if you're dead then you can you could never fix it you were never going yeah. to fix it and god's not blaming you any more than i'd blame sarah any more than we blame a young child for having cancer and if god sees our sin that way you're helpless and as i said to some of this because people then go oh so then we're not responsible we can just do whatever we want it doesn't matter i said no 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 to not be at fault is one thing. Mm -hmm. To be responsible for the pain we bring into the world is another. So yes. I can be responsible for the pain I bring in, and that's what will drive me to Jesus. Jesus, would you set me free from these things that have twisted me up with fear or shame or whatever that is impacting me and my relationships around me? Because I, I'm seeing so many people affected. And I love that. Not faulted, but also still responsible. And not in a guilt, pressure, manipulative sort of way. Just if I'm if I'm a bad actor, if my trauma or my sin or my indulgence forces my will on someone else to hurt or punish them, I, it's not an excuse to go, oh, I don't care, just the way it is. I couldn't help it. It is to say, okay, God has something better for me. 
How do I lean into that space? And how do I let him liberate me? Because I am responsible. I think any of us can look at our lives and say, what am I putting into the world? Am I putting love yes. and open doors and encouragement and tenderness in the world? Or am I putting my anger, my vitriol, my insecurities and manipulating of other people? Am I putting that into the world? And if it's the latter, you're not hopeless. That's why God redeemed us. You don't have to live that way. And that's where I feel like the rest-filled repentance comes in. As we're navigating that through the space and the lens of love, as God is working that out in our life and drawing us into that deeper expression and experience of life, when we recognize if we're putting something out into the world that's causing another person pain or harm, or it's having that negative impact, for me anyway, that's where that that deep rest-filled repentance of sorrow for impacting people that way, wanting to see change, seeking out a different way of living in the world, because that's not the stamp, that's not the impact that I want to have on those around me. And you hear this all the time, but I love this idea about, well, I get to go and just do whatever I want then. And yeah. so, and it's really intriguing because in some ways I would almost say, okay, go for it. Because in that, if they've been so bound up in guilt and shame and religiosity and the burdens of religion, and there's like this, this space of like, oh my gosh, like I, well, now I can go and do whatever I want. There's almost this dark shadow that's cast over that. And yet at times I hear somebody saying, if you just got out of prison and all of a sudden you got set free and you had the freedom to go and pursue what you wanted to in front of you, isn't that something that I would personally, I would want to celebrate. Then in that, my guess is, is that your response, well, yeah, you may have, there may be those selfish responses. There may be those responses where they're like, okay, I'm just going to go and use the world, right? As because I'm or justifying rob a bank. it. Or, yeah, or rob a bank, or I'm going yeah. to go and have a peaceful protest and break somebody's window and burn a cop car and whatever, you know? But there's there's something in there that it's like, man, if if you've been so bound up, I it's almost like, especially by religiosity and shame and guilt, it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to to operate in this space of somebody who is free and delighted in. Now, again, that's not permission to go out and destroy the world by any means, but there's there's something in that where it's like, man, that's would you even dare to do that? And if so, what would you dare to do? Right? Like if, if we, if there was, if we had no responsibility, what would we go and dare to do? And for me, it's like, there isn't a drive in me to go out and use the world or go out and harm my daughters or go out and abuse my wife or go out and cheat. You know, that's not my first inclination of my, my freedom and how I would use it. That's not where my heart goes. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I think I've said it before. If you're looking for the Bible or the life of Jesus to give you an excuse to live however you want to live and hurt whomever you want to hurt, then the Bible doesn't really have anything to say to you. <laughs> but if your places of brokenness and how you see that impacting relationships around you, even if it's your own selfishness, but you see that it hurts people, it isolates you, it makes you more uh, someone people avoid rather than people to embrace. I think something inside, if you have any compassion at all, and particularly if you've been loved by God, then you're going to care how your life impacts. Not, not a performance thing for him. It's not that. Correct. It's just simply, man, this isn't fair to 
treat one another as you want to be treated. The whole golden rule thing. That's just, that's just common sense. That's not necessarily some brilliant thing. If you think you're better than everybody around you, so you should get what you want at their expense, then you're already a dangerous human being. My goodness. But if you're not, if you're, if you're driving, like you want other people around you to drive, or you talk to people like you want other people to talk to you, if you give the kindness that you hope to get from other people, even to strangers, then the world works better. It just works better and it works better for you. And if you're so self-indulgent that the only thing restraining you is God's anger at your sin, you've already misunderstood the gospel. You've already nullified the work of the cross. You're just looking for an excuse. And you know what? You're not going to get saved anyway. That's, That's not being saved. Being saved is freed from our baser instincts, or as we've been talking about with sin and trauma, there are things we do out of fear or out of insecurity that we don't even realize. We don't know we're being destructive. We're just trying to survive. And so there's a lot of collateral damage that's done inadvertently out of our brokenness. But the opportunity is still the same. She said, I want to save you. I want to rescue you. I want to bring you into a better place where you can live in the freedom of who I am and really become the reason for which God created us in the world, which I know some people hear that. And I hear this all the time. We're created for God's glory. So God just wants to exploit us. God just wants to use us. That's not what that means. God created you to be a certain way and to live in certain freedoms and sin and doubt and fear and trauma. All those have twisted us in ways that we think we're being true to ourselves when we're really not. Mm -hmm. In fact, we're living in adversity to ourselves. And so the whole message of salvation and freedom, to get it not to be my fault isn't an excuse. It's the freedom to be with God while he reshapes my heart. Not for his, yes. not so I can be his manipulative tool, but that I can be the person he made me to be in the world. And the fulfillment and joy that comes from you standing in a classroom, having a conversations with students that matters, or me sitting with a group of people in Wichita on Saturday and exploring trauma for a lot of people in the room who have known trauma and some who haven't dealt with trauma yet in their lives. I mean, those, I, man, that you're in moments like that where you feel the pleasure of God as well as your own. And yes. that's what's beautiful. Yes. And that's that's where you, I think you phrase it so well in regards to the idea that if you're just looking for an excuse or if literally the only thing that's holding you back in just completely living in this life of debauchery and abuse and, and malice in the world is the commandments of the Christian religion – okay, like we've got an issue here like because there hasn't been any heart transformation. There hasn't been any movement there. there. There hasn't been an experience of life because when you engage with that love, when you engage and taste that life experience, you want more. It's insatiable. It's hard not to want to say, okay, that was so distinctly different than anything I could have manufactured on my own. How do I encounter more of that? And how do I become a conduit of that into the world? And you can almost tell that from the moment you've acted in some way, because when you've acted yeah. in a way that's hurt others or just been indulgent for yourself, but also damaging to yourself, what do you feel after that? And there's not just the shame of religious performance and all that kind of stuff. There, there's things where I just you just feel inside. I do after I've done something that's more wane than godly. You might have in the moment thought it was OK and you could justify it. But afterwards, there's you feel bad about it. 
right? There might be regret. Yes. There might be just, ooh, that wasn't as fun as I thought. And then the, the question is, are you going to lean into that? Like, okay, maybe I could learn something here. Or, and this is what we more often do, am I going to find the justification? Even though I feel bad about doing that, I had to do it. Here's all the reasons I had to do it. And when you find yourself justifying yourself all the time, that's a pretty good indication you're not walking in freedom. Because yes. freedom doesn't have to be justified. You don't have right. to say, yeah, this would normally be wrong. But in this case, because they did so-and-so, what I did was the normal response. And if it was bad, it's their fault. Because And when you're doing that with yourself, which we've all done, that cognitive dissonance game, then you go, okay, this is not freedom. Freedom does not take self-justification. There's no need for it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, oh my gosh, yes. And I... I think that's the delight, you know, that we, I think about even Jess and I were talking about just this morning um, about for me, one of the things that my heart was so because of trauma, because of my own manufacturing of my own guards, et cetera, is like there, there wasn't access. People didn't, people felt like they were very connected to me because I could make people feel seen. I could listen really well. I could give them good feedback. I, you know, I could be very connected in that way. All the time, the entire time, it was a smokescreen to where they to make sure that they had no access to me. There was no actual contact to, to me. I was experiencing them. I was getting to see their heart, but they had no contact with me. And that for me, for a long time, that helped me survive in the environment that I was in. But then now all of a sudden I have community that loves me. I have a wife that I adore. I've got girls that I absolutely love. And it's like, no, that's not okay anymore not allowing them, them not having access to me and the intimate parts of my heart, I'm not okay with. And yet I'm not sure what it takes to dismantle those. So father, press into that, whatever it takes, tear those walls freaking down for me. And that's, man, that feels like freedom to me. And we were talking about that this morning and just was like, yeah, I've got significantly more access to you now than I did when we first got married. Hmm. Um, and that's, that's transformed over time. And it's still a work in progress, but that's that invitation to that life of there are some deep guards that you that took my strengths, my God-given strengths, skewed them, and I used them for my own self-protection. But now it's not working anymore. And so now what do I do? How do I work my how do I allow Father to untangle that to where I'm in life again? And what a great impetus for change. Because if if the impetus of change is Here's the rules you're violating. You need to stop violating because these tick off God or ruin the community or whatever. That That's not very effective. When I'm doing something that I've justified, think is okay. But the, uh, the end of it is I feel miserable or that I feel like I'm using somebody because I like I have access to their heart, but I'm not giving them access to mine. When you when you have that, then you're you have a better place to go. Okay, God, what do I need to see happen in me? How do I lean into yeah. a bit more whole space? If it's just I'm violating a rule and I've got to learn a technique to kind of mitigate the rule or meet the rule, it's kind of a hassle. And so here's the here's the thing that I think is most fascinating: following our ourselves and our own agenda for life leads to misery and emptiness. It mm. does, and it may be like. Like Hebrews talks about, there's pleasure in sin for a season. So it might be actually yeah. fun when it's happening or pleasurable, but afterwards yeah. you feel empty and miserable. When you find where it is that God is at work in you and how he asks you to be in the world, there's that sense of pleasure, God's pleasure in mind and fullness, not emptiness, but now fullness. But what's interesting about it is this, pursue pleasure and you won't get there. 
Find what it is to be wholehearted in God, and you'll find his pleasure and yours, even in the darkest of circumstances, even in the most yes. painful of events, there's an underlying sense of fullness and pleasure. Seek that, and you won't get there. Follow him, and when he writes the ship, when he untangles the stuff inside, as we've talked about before, so that I, oh my gosh, I'm at love and rest and play in him, then the fullness of that comes, which we... It's interesting how so much of this comes back to what we've been talking about for two years. Even the pleasure of God, which we always thought was being pleasing to God to our own misery. That's how religion teaches it. Yes, you're going to yes. be miserable pleasing God, but you don't want to get decked by God later, so you must live a life pleasing <laughs> to God. It wasn't talking about living in the Father's pleasure, which is also ours. They're not his yeah. or ours. They're, the real pleasure is found in him. All our ecstasy is found in him. It's not found getting the circumstances we want or manipulating life the way we want it to be. That just leads to brokenness and misery. And like I said, that self-justification where I've got to keep telling myself, I'm okay. I've done right. I, I'm not at fault for this. It wasn't me who did it. When you're living that way, dude, there's not much pleasure in that. There's a lot of hurt and pain. And I think it's really interesting that we try to often separate those experiences um, from apart from him. And yet it's like, wait a minute, he is the author of the human heart. He is the author of wholehearted living. He is the author of true and abundant life. So if that's the case, when we're experiencing these moments out in the world that are so fulfilling or so gratifying to our heart and the, the end result after they aren't pleasurable for a moment, but we get done and there's like this deep the, the hangover feeling is a good feeling. <laughs> you know, the residual <laughs> taste in our mouth is a good taste in our mouth, right? And yet, like, we often separate those things. And say, how is that not kingdom? How is that not part of his heart? And so when we're talking about, like, our, our pleasures or our delights aligning with his and his heart, yes, there are those ones that are self-centered, right? Where it's like, okay, I'm going to go out and binge drink to forget the world or I'm going to whatever. And there are these very fleeting moments where it's like these, there's these brief experiences of, of maybe ecstasy or happiness or whatever, but there's super fleeting. And then the end result is misery, right? Or regret or despair or whatever it might be. So you were talking yeah. about a positive hangover because the negative hangover is the yes. same reality, right? I've indulged Correct. myself. It was great fun while we're doing it, but I wake up the next morning going, oh my gosh, that was so stupid. And what? I'd never do that again kind of thing. And I think that's a great thing when you've done something or something's happened in your life, how are you feeling the next day about it? Is there a sense of joy? Yes. Oh, that That's a great kind of hangover. No, it's, it is. It's that feeling the next day. Like you, you're in the yep. moment, you have this experience, it's whatever kind of high it is, but then where do you land the next day? What is the residuals? What is the, the hangover effect of that? And is it positive? Is it negative? And at least for me, as the longer I've walked with him and the more that he's untangling things in my life, the more I'm realizing that when I was out in, in the mountains fishing and it's quiet and there's beauty around me and there's a fish splashing on a perfectly still lake and, and there's just this bubbling up of joy in me, how is that not in alignment with the delight of the father and delight of delight of kingdom? If not um, the delight of the fish, right? Yeah. Well, that's, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, 
photography oh, get in the creation yeah. and go snorkeling and <laughs> take a picture of that fish in there and then you both can have a good fulfilling day that's, that's fair that's fair that's fair <laughs> i don't know what to do with that honestly but i love how god could invite us into that place of fulfillment to think that the god who loves us wants us to know the fullness of his pleasure not the fearful obedience to his dictates it's it's the yeah. god who made heaven and earth after all he's concerned about yes. our pleasure it's he who's at work in us of his good pleasure and we who experience the fullness of joy in him that language from scripture is so antithetical to the legalistic god to yes. the angry deity to please me because i'm more powerful than you and I think the one sustains our trauma and that whole, you know, Stockholm syndrome thing. We're just keeping God happy so we can have some measure of happiness. When God is actually saying, Wayne, I want to untwist you to make you exactly who I made you to be so you can know my pleasure in the world. I know that from watching Sarah. You know, a lot of her coping mechanisms from the trauma she's had are just to find a way to survive. They're never really about joy. They're about survival. And now her growing freedom in Christ, there's really, really moments of joy, deep, heartfelt laughter, deep, even though the work is still in progress, the fullness of her joy is a good sign of where God has done his work. And the, the coping mechanisms that have to mitigate against fear or threat or whatever, they're never about joy. They're only about survival. Yes. And God wants so much more for us. And I think that's part of the the untwisting space is it's actually increasing our capacity for delight. I think about this, uh, like literally just this last week, Elle and I decided that we were going to go on a, a kayaking adventure together. I've kayaked and done a lot of stuff on the water. This is her first time ever going on a kayak or a canoe or anything like that. She and I sit down in this kayak. We make it maybe a quarter of a mile before she is like done you know it was it was a little scary this was a new section of water and so there was a couple of like shoots that were moving into like class two plus rapids yeah. where i'm like okay this is this is a little spicier than i wanted to take my daughter on you know thankfully the water depth is only like my knee deep so even if we were to get in trouble i could stand up pick her up and take her out of the water you know kind of thing but, but she doesn't know that she does not know that and so we do like it took us two and a half hours of prep time to go and do a quarter of a mile on the river that maybe lasted 15 minutes. And yet, like, I mean, even even honestly, Wayne, a year before this, I would have been so annoyed. Like that took forever. Like I'm so, like so frustrated. I did all this planning. We get on the water and we last maybe a quarter of a mile. Like what the heck? And I get home and I was like, okay, that was an adventure. Like that was an epic, you know, there wasn't any frustration. It was just like, okay, that was crazy. And Jess and I get L down for bed. And then that night, Jess and I are laying there in bed and Jess's comment was Kyle. I don't know if you know this or not, but L could not stop talking about the adventure in the kayak that her and her daddy got to go on together. For her, it was epic, and she loved every second of it, even though there weren't very many seconds of it, you know, like, and yet my capacity for delight has slowly been being increased by Father to where 
in that moment, even though we did a quarter of a mile and I wanted to do, I had planned a four and a half mile float. We did a quarter of a mile and it was absolutely a blast. It was just this delight, this mini epic that I got to do with my daughter and she was totally thrilled. And my, my like frustration or my goals of making it happen or whatever, they didn't rob that moment anymore. They didn't rob the delight of that experience anymore. That drivenness didn't rob that delight anymore. Man, that was a, a fun, mild celebration that Jess and I got to have that evening as we were kind of debriefing the day. That's great. Two things there. One, she's no longer in the boat, so she didn't have the fear. She just has the good memories, Correct. which Correct. is all amazing. Yes. And, and the second thing is we're still going at the pace of the slowest person. You want to go four miles. Yes. She's, she's good for a quarter. So, And I think God, what people don't see is that God's that way with us. Like, we'll think yeah. about, oh, God wanted so much more, and I wasn't able to. He's inviting us as far down the road as we're willing to go, and then he's willing to stop. Let the good memories find a place there so that next time I'll have more courage and more freedom and less terror to go further with him. I think he's a master at going at our pace and letting us have the reality we need to continue to walk with him and follow him. Thank you for traveling with us today on The God Journey. You can join this conversation by visiting thegodjourney.com. 